Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening. He is risen. You guys, first Easter, huh? All right. Right on. Cool. Well, I'm glad that you're here and uh, celebrating your first Easter with us. That's exciting. It's been a great weekend so far um, at uh, SCG. Last night, we, uh, we had our first service inside for Good Friday, and it was, it was amazing. And so as many of you heard, we're going to be having those services indoors in just a few weeks. So we're very excited about that. So um, here's the deal is I have been given 15 minutes and I have uh, the simple task of explaining to you what happened on Easter and why it happened. In 15 minutes, I got to tell you the most important event in all of human history and some of the philosophical and theological and personal implications for your life so that your eternity can change. Are you ready? Okay. You have a lot more confidence than I do. All right. So if I were to ask you, in one sentence, what happened on Easter, whether you're a Christian or not, and I, I know many of you, this is your first Easter, um, you would probably be able to explain to me at least this idea, that Jesus came to earth, that he died on a cross, he rose again so that I could be forgiven of my sins and one day go to heaven. And I think most people, at least in our culture, they can explain that part. Now, they may not believe it. It may mean nothing to them, but they can at least tell you that's what Easter is about. And that's true. That is at the core what Easter is about. But I want to step back a little bit, and I want to give you maybe the bigger picture of what's taking place at Easter. And in order to do that, we're going to have to step back a little bit. We're going to have to rewind because the story of Easter does not start when Jesus is on a cross, it actually starts at the very beginning, in Genesis. In Genesis, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. See, here's the idea, is when God created the heavens and the earth, he created the heavens, and the heavens is where God's realm is. It's where he dwells. It's a spiritual place. And then the earth, or the world, well, that's the material world. That's the one that you and I inhabit. And we know that world pretty well. It's full of mountains and trees and, and people and seas. And Oh, I rhymed. Uh, we know that world. And when he created those two things, they were supposed to be created to be united. See, that's what the garden was, is he created us and he placed us in a garden. And it wasn't just this beautiful place where we could hang out and enjoy the scenery. No, there was something significant, something special about the garden, because it was where heaven and earth came together and were united, or were, were united as one. It's where these two came together, where God and man could be in an intimate relationship. They were never supposed to be torn apart. And in this garden... We had our Heavenly Father, and He acted not only as our Creator and our Heavenly Father, but as our King, where we would be able to submit to Him as our ruler, as our guide, as our teacher, as one who loved us, as someone that we can trust, that cares for us, that knows what's best. And in return, He continued to not only love us, but entrust us to allow us to be stewards of His creation, to co-create with Him. And it was good. The problem was is that there was just a few things that were out of bounds. So the image that comes to my mind is, let's imagine that there is a king, and he invites us into his palace. And he says, come, you can live in the palace. You don't even have to be guests. In fact, I'm going to allow you to be my heirs, my children in this palace. Everything is yours. There's just one rule. 
this thing over here is off limits. Now, in the story, we know what is off limits is. There's this tree, and it has some fruit on it. And he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it's not just about a tree. I think some people, as modern folks, we get kind of caught up on this, and we think, oh, this is kind of silly. A tree with fruit, don't eat it. That, no, no, it's not about the tree. It's about trust. And if you're a parent, you know exactly how this works. Because I tell my kids all the time, look, you cannot have any more Oreos. You've had enough Oreos today. You've eaten a pack and a half. We can't do any more. And yet, when my kids go and they sneak those Oreos, I'm not upset because they ate an Oreo. I'm upset because they disobeyed me. See, that's what was happening in the garden. It wasn't about this tree and this fruit. It was really about a disobedience. Because God was saying, if you trust me, if you believe that I love you, that I want what's best for you, you're going to stay away from the things that I say are off limits. And so he asked the question, do you trust me? Do you think that I love you? Well, man answers with a no. God, you cannot be trusted. We must overthrow your oppressive rule in our lives. We want to rule ourselves, and we want to be our own ultimate authority. And in that moment, when we decided to rebel against our creator, heaven and earth, which was united, is torn apart. And now we have these two kingdoms that are in conflict. We have the kingdom of the world. And that's the kingdom that each one of us were born into. It's a kingdom that is full of suffering and evil and death and sin. And then we have the kingdom of God. And that is a place of peace, of justice, of joy, of love. And so as God is kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, he makes them one last promise. He says, this won't be your ultimate end. There will come a day when in your family, in your lineage, a man will arise and he will come and crush this evil that you have released into the world. But as he does so, he himself will be crushed. And this is kind of the, the, the foundation for what the rest of the Bible has to say. And that really the story of the scripture is God bringing heaven and earth back together again as one. He's defeating evil. He's bringing peace. And he's becoming king over creation. That's really what the story of the scripture is. So with that in mind, we jump in and in the Old Testament, we see that God calls this man named Abraham. And he says, through you and your family, I am going to begin to restore the goodness and the peace in the world. And it begins to happen. Abraham's family rises up into an entire nation called Israel. And God reveals himself to Israel, and they become his representatives in the world. And if we fast forward a little bit, we get to this one king, King David. And this is kind of the hero king. And he, uh, he begins to look like he might be the one that's going to put the world back together. In fact, um, there's some really cool stuff. If you know the story in the Old Testament, God does some weird things that you and I don't really understand because we maybe don't understand the big picture. But he tells them to build a tabernacle. Eventually, David turns it into uh, the temple. And he says, this is going to be sort of like the garden. Because it's going to be where God and man come together and they meet once again. It's going to be where kingdom of God and the, the, and the earth, they meet and they touch. And you're going to be able to see me once again. The problem is that David, he's flawed just like all the other people have been flawed. The nation, although it was supposed to be ruled by the, the creator king, decides to pursue rebellion. David's a mess, just like all the other people are a mess. And so instead of submitting to them, they decide they're going to go their own way. And the great, potentially king, ends up being a failure. 
So people begin to wonder, well, what is God going to do? How is he going to bring this whole thing back together? And God makes him another promise. Although David is not the king that you thought he was going to be, and although he is not the true king, the Messiah, one day I will send. I will send someone who will be your savior. Just like before, it seems to be a pattern, not only in the scriptures, but in many of our lives is God says, okay, go this way. He makes us some promises, and we decide, nah, I think I'm going to go do my own thing. Thank you very much. And Israel starts to, con- to go off their own way in rebellion. They continue to go further and further away from God's rule and reign. And this whole time, God's sending these prophets, and he's reminding them, hey, I've made a promise, and I'm going to fulfill it. I will send a Savior one day, but you have to get back on track. You have to turn away from your sin. You have to come back under my reign. And they continue to push further and further and further away from God. Until one day, God just goes silent, says nothing. And so for hundreds of years, there's no prophets, there's no nothing. It's as if God has abandoned his people until this man named Jesus shows up. And he says, with my arrival, the kingdom of God is here. That somehow he is the embodiment that when he came, the kingdom of God came with him. And so he begins preaching about the kingdom of God. He talks about how the kingdom and the earth are going to be put back together again. That the king is going to overcome and he's going to become king of creation We've talked about it in this last series in Matthew, is this kingdom that he talks about, this kingdom of God, is the upside-down kingdom. As he begins to talk about what it looks like to live in the kingdom, all the values, all the beliefs, all the things that we know intuitively, at least we believe to be true, he takes them and he turns them upside down and he says, no, no, instead of pursuing strength, you must become weak. Instead of pride, it's humility. Instead of your will, it's his will. He's really painting a picture for us of a new way to live, new priorities, beliefs, to know God, to be human. And then Jesus begins to confront evil and bring peace into the world. He heals the sick and feeds the poor, raises the dead, casts out demons and forgives sin. And in Jesus, we can see the kingdom of God touching down on earth. A little piece of heaven has begun to come down to this broken place. It's as if God is putting the world back together again. And people th- seem to think maybe this is the true Messiah. This is the king. This is the one that we've been waiting for. In fact, Jesus, uh, along in his ministry, hasn't really said that he's the king until we get to uh, close to the end of his ministry. And he just proclaims that, yes, you're right. I am the Messiah. Your suspicions are true. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And eventually, or immediately, he turns to Jerusalem and he rides in. And there's this glorious scene we talked about last week in which he rides in. And it's a paradox because we have Jesus riding in, claiming that he's the king into Jerusalem. But he doesn't want to donkey which is weird and then he's going to go in and he flips tables and it's this whole scene and what it's really pointing at is Jesus claiming to be Messiah and he's ready to take his throne he is the true king the one that they've been waiting for that was on Sunday so last Sunday we talked about that story and if you've been going through our devotionals and all that you know that there's many events that took place it's a pretty busy week but by Friday we see that Jesus has been betrayed He's been arrested, he's been put on trial, he's been beaten, he's been stripped naked, he's been put on a cross, and is dead. All within a week, he rides in as king and ends up on the cross. From an earthly perspective, this is a failure, this is a mess, this is not at all how things were supposed to go. But what's strange about this is in that very moment, this is how Jesus would become king. 
Jesus became king in that moment because three days later he would rise from the dead. And this would be the ultimate vindication that he really is the true king, that the kingdom really has arrived with his coming. And no one saw it. No one could have predicted it. No one expected it to happen, well, except for one person, Jesus. He knew that this was what needed to take place. He knew that the only way to bring the kingdom of God back to earth is for the king to come and to die. Why? Let me give you just really quick three things, three reasons why. The reason why the king must die is because that is the way of the kingdom. Jesus is showing us that in order to turn the world upside down, it's going to take sacrificial love. See, the way of the world is, the way we change things is through power and influence and strength. And the way of the kingdom is through weakness and sacrifice and love. And so when Jesus comes, we see that he comes not in power, but in weakness. If you think about what's going to fix the world, and I know this is a big thing, that's not, we're not here to fix the world, but just, just imagine if, if we were going to see the world come to a place of peace, what would it take? Would it take more firepower? Would it take more strength, more wars? No, no, no. Now, maybe those are necessary in order to kind of keep evil at bay, but that's not what ultimately would bring peace. What's going to bring peace is sacrificial love. So Jesus says, if you want to defeat the evil in the world, it's going to begin through the cross. This applies to every area of our life, no matter how big or small. If you want to save your marriage, what's it going to take? Power and strength? No, it's going to take sacrificial love. If you want to raise healthy kids, create a neighborhood that you want to be a part of, if you want to see change in your life and in the people around you, is it going to take more influence, more power, more money, more strength? No, 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 no. It's going to take sacrificial love. And so Jesus calls his disciples to pick up their cross and to follow him. He leads the way. Second is this is the way to freedom. When Jesus went to the cross, something strange happened. He won by losing. He received more power and influence than anybody else in human history, and he did it through sacrifice and service. He brought life through death. See, what happened on the cross is he had a victory. When he raised from the dead, he had a victory, and that defeat was over death itself, but it was also over the systems of power and influence in this world that all of us have been enslaved to. One of the primary ways that people gain power in this world is through fear. You've seen dictators throughout human history, and the way that they have gained their power is by um, making other people afraid, afraid of maybe their death or the death of loved ones. And when Jesus comes along and he defeats all of the powers of the world by submitting to death and rising again, he has broken that power over the life of the believer. Think about it in practical terms. If someone is threatening your life, and that is how they hold the power, but you as a believer know that Jesus has rose from the dead, that death has lost its sting, that you, sting, you don't have to be afraid anymore. You know what's happened in that moment? You don't, you don't have to submit to those powers because you say, you know what? In death, I meet Christ. In death, I receive eternal glory. I don't have to be afraid anymore. It's not just true on these big, scary things. It's also true on just the everyday level. Is everyone that I, I, not everyone, a lot of people that I see to some degree or another, 
they continue to find their value and their significance and their worth in what they can do and what they've accomplished and, and who they know and how they look, what they have been able to accumulate. But the believer doesn't have to submit to those pressures anymore, to those powers of this world. Because the believer comes and says, you know what? Whether I have money, whether I have beauty, whether I have success, it can come and it can go and I'll still be okay because I don't find my identity in those things anymore. That power has been broken in my life because I have now found my victory in Christ's victory. See, when Jesus, when Jesus rose and he had victory on the cross, he came and he lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died and he won the victory that we could never win in order to set us free. We once were enslaved to sin, to the powers of this world, constantly trying to prove ourselves to be better, to do better, always failing. And Christ's victory is an inv invitation to partake in with him this victory, to make his victory our victory and to be set from all of those powers and influences of the world. And finally, this is the way that we enter into the kingdom, is in this story, we must not forget that we are the ones who are rebels. See, whenever we read a story, we always like to think of ourselves as the hero, right? That's where we insert, of course I'm the prince. <laughs> of course I'm the princess. No, no, no. In this story, you're the rebel. You're the villain. You're the one that has decided that you didn't want to go God's way, that you wanted to reject his kingship, that instead of submitting to him, you were going to place yourself in your ultimate authority. And you think, I didn't do that. Don't kid yourself. Every one of us have done that. This is our natural disposition. It's I want it my way. It's my life. I want to do it how I want to do it. It's my money, my relationships, my career, my body, my sexuality, my desires and wants. It's I get to decide what I want to do when I want to do it because guess who the ultimate authority of my life is? Me. That's not the amen part. You got to wait. Appreciate it though. He was like, yeah, I'll sign up for that. Like, you already... That's not, no, we're not, okay. <laughs> we have to realize that it's not just this abstract rebellion. The rebellion is within each one of us, that each of us have decided to rebel against our creator, that we don't want to be a part of his kingdom. We want to set up our own little kingdom. We want to be our own little authorities. See, the problem is, is that Jesus has come and he says, you're standing in rebellion. You're standing in opposition to my kingdom. You, you have to stop. You have to put down your arms. You, you have to stop this rebellion and you have to turn around and come my way. See, there's always a debt to be paid when someone has been wronged. Let's imagine that we're going out of the parking lot after this and you're just really amped about the service and accidentally you're not paying attention or they're not paying attention and somehow you... You collide with another car. You get into a fender bender. You say a quick prayer, Lord, help me not lose it on this person in the church parking lot in front of the pastor. That would be a mess. You get out, you assess the damage, you look at each other, and you're like, someone's going to have to pay for this. You have two options. Either you can say, I forgive you. I'll take care of it. Or you can say, this is your fault. You have to pay for it. One way or another, somebody's going to have to pay for this. Somebody has to absorb the cost of the damage that has been done. The same is true relationally. Imagine that somebody has, has really wronged you. Somebody who you love, a spouse, a best friend, and they have betrayed you. You have two options in that moment. You can either make them pay for what they have done. This is called 
revenge. The problem is, is you become just like them, nasty and bitter and angry. And you probably start a cycle, a never-ending cycle of revenge in which it's now going to continue on. Or you, you can say, I forgive you. you. You can absorb the cost of what's taken place there. And that's really your only option for some kind of reconciliation or at least to stop this cycle of revenge. But the problem is, is now you have to absorb the cost of the injustice that's been done. If you've ever had something done to you that's really, really painful, you know how hard it is to forgive that person? Why is that so hard? Why is it so hard? Because your heart knows that there's been an injustice and somebody has to pay for it. And to say, I forgive you, means that you will pay for the injustice that's been done. See, if we uh, understand this on a human level, how much more so does God understand this? Being perfect, loving, and just, we have rejected him and rebelled and stood in opposition from him. And someone has to pay for this injustice. And there's really two options. Either you pay or you allow Jesus to pay. If you pay, that's a debt that you're never going to be able to pay off because you have nothing to give this perfect and holy God. What do you have to offer? Your good deeds? You're a really nice person? You gave a couple bucks to a homeless guy? What are you going to tell him? Sorry I rebelled against you. I rejected you. I spit in your face. But did you see what I did at Christmas with that goodie bag that I gave? That ain't gonna cut it. And so Jesus comes and he says, I will pay the cost because you can never do it. And so on the cross, our debt is paid in full and the resurrection becomes the receipt that we have been forgiven. And so the bottom line is this. I just got done reading through the book of Matthew. I've been going through it for six weeks. And it was very clear what Jesus' point was at the end of it. It makes me uncomfortable. It may even make you angry. But here's what Jesus said. He says, stop your rebellion and surrender. Turn your life around and give it over to me. Become a part of my kingdom. Because what's going to happen is one day the king will return. And he will put down this rebellion. And you want to be on his side of the line. Become a part of my kingdom. He even goes a little further and he says, not only will I forgive you for your rebellion, but I will welcome you in and I will take you from being a rebel to being a royal heir. You're not going to just be a citizen in my kingdom. You're going to be a family member and you're going to have all the blessings and privileges of being a child of the king. So come be a part of my kingdom. There's this universal sign for surrender. Let's put up your hands in the air. Everybody knows what it means. And if you're a church person or not, you've probably been around and maybe during the worship today, you saw somebody raising their hands and you went, what is that all about? See, that, that's just an act of surrender. It's saying, God, I surrender to you. Some of us, we need to do that. We need to say, I surrender. Maybe it's for the first time. You have been doing life on your own terms. You have been in rebellion. You have been building your kingdom. You've been doing things your way. And today you need to say, I surrender. I am not doing this anymore. I lay down my arms I cease to be a rebel, and I want to be a part of your kingdom. Some of you, you've made that commitment, but you've been holding something back. It's a relationship, a hope, a dream, a habit, a, a past failure or pain. And God has been saying, when you surrender, it means complete surrender. I want it all. I want the past. I want the present. I want the future. Surrender means you give everything to me. 
So stop holding on to it. Open your hands and let it go. And so here's what I want to do. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and, and they're going to come up, and they're going to do one more song. But here's what I would like in this next, next few moments, is if that is you, if, if you need to just say, you know what, I surrender. For the first time, I surrender. I give my life to you. Your Lord, your King, it's all yours. Or, or maybe it's, there's something in your life that you know. As soon as I said it, you said, there it is, right there. I've been holding on to this. You need to surrender. I want you to do something that might make you a little uncomfortable. I want you in this next song to just start raising your hands up as a sign of surrender. Lord, it's yours. I'm making a declaration before you and the people around me that I surrender, that I lay down my arms. The rebellion is over. I want to be yours. Let's pray. Lord God, we come and we, we often try and times try to ignore the fact that we have been in rebellion, that we have decided that we wanted to go our own way, that we wanted to do our own thing, that we wanted to be our own authority. And when you showed up on earth, you said, stop, stop going your way and come my way. Stop the rebellion. Come into my kingdom. Be one of my children again. And Lord, as you invite us into your kingdom and you begin to, to work on us, you begin to change us, we begin to see things changing not only in us, but around us. It's how you're putting the world back together as one person at a time, one life, one heart, one soul, Lord. And so Lord God, some of us, we need to surrender, maybe for the first time. And it's not an accident we're here and it's not an accident that we feel that just Oh, that uncomfortable feeling in our, in our hearts that we know that you are calling us to surrender. And so, Lord God, speak to us. Allow us to have the strength to surrender. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.
surrender to the King who reigns, who rose from the grave for you and for me. Let's sing this out today. Every victory is His. Come on. just want to share a couple minutes. Um, I'm not going to do the other half of the sermon. Uh, I'm only going to do uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, 20% of it. But I just want to do, before we leave, we really need to um, read the passage in Matthew. And I'd like to just make a couple of observations, maybe leave a couple of pictures in your mind. I think one of the pictures from today to take with this is this, surrender, that we all need to, on a regular basis, surrender. And there has to be a first time we surrender. And when we, for the very first time, raise our hands and surrender to God, saying that we want to be a part of his kingdom. We're not going to build our own kingdom or at least try to anymore. That's the beginning of an incredible relationship. It is the beginning of a whole new life. It is a part of of being a part of his kingdom. And once we do that, I need to remind us that the cross wasn't just so people would enter the kingdom. The power of the resurrection provides for a different kind of life once we're in the kingdom, a different kind of power, a different kind of um, working in us, not only to improve our character, but to increase our impact. And so I just want to read this passage and leave you two quick images. It's found in Matthew 28, starting with verse 1. And it says, uh, it says the following, After the Sabbath at the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. 
He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. It's interesting to me, in this passage, it says that there was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. It says that this has an interesting, sometimes we just think, oh, the resurrection. We need sometimes to visual. I'm kind of a visual learner. And sometimes we need a little uh, visual to help us remember. A few years ago when we uh, went to Israel with uh, uh, some people from our church the first time, and we do that every once in a while, we may be doing one of those next year. And, and it's, we don't make any money on it or anything. It's just a way for us to share this experience with people. George, who, uh, George Wood is one of our former pastors here and leads the uh, tour with us. And he took us to a place, and it was about this time of day, maybe he did a little bit later, and it was in a park behind a, a very famous hotel in Jerusalem. And we sat in this park, and he led us there, and, he, and it was our last night together. And as we sat there, he explained to us where we were sitting, because it was just beautiful green, and, uh, and uh, across the kind of the way, you could see the old city, at least parts of the old city. And at that time of the day, there was this beautiful golden rays of sunlight washing over the cream-colored um, stones of the ancient city. And he began to talk about just the historical significance of what we were looking at and all those kinds of things. And then he said, and now. And so what's interesting is you're sitting there and you're looking at this beautiful old city, but you're hearing often the distance, the buses, then the traffic, and, the, and you think about where you are. You're a place of great historical significance. So many important things have happened, so many important cultures there. And, and you're in the midst of this, and, and there's an unending conflict between people groups. There seems to be no way to find peace and you begin to kind of absorb the just the magnitude of this city and this location and this region and and the historical impact of it and then George draws our attention and he says and by the way what is right in front of you is a first century tomb and after that point I wasn't quite sure what it was and, and when I looked at it I realized indeed there was this depression in the ground and we were kind of sitting on the edges of it and there was this, this kind of depression leading to what I now see as a door covered with a round stone. And he said this is a tomb contemporary with what Jesus would have been buried in. He wasn't suggesting it was Jesus' tomb. Matter of fact, it's already occupied. To this day, it's still occupied. We don't know by whom or for what reason, but it was maybe at the very same time or certainly very close to the time of Jesus. And suddenly my focus went from the grandness of the city and the historical significance of where I was and the overwhelming challenges of that place and the, and the incredibly complex world in which we live to just remembering that there was a body in this tomb. And it had been there for 2,000 years and nobody knew his name. We have no idea whose tomb it is. And I began to kind of become overwhelmed with a sense of not only insignificance, but maybe futility. If these thousands of people over thousands of years have lived in this city, and it is no more peaceful than it ever was. They're no closer to solutions than they ever were. What is the point of my little life? I, like this person in this tomb, could just die and be buried. And within a few years, they will have forgotten my name. And it's no point of me even having ever been here. Have you ever thought about that? Who cares? You're here, so what? And yet... 
as George began to lead us in that last evening together through communion, I was reminded that it wasn't this tomb we were in Jerusalem for, it was another tomb. You see, at that same time, there was another tomb in Jerusalem, and it was occupied, but for a very short period of time. You see, this other tomb contained a rabbi, a rabbi who went around teaching amazing wisdom that was beyond anybody else, and doing things for people who were hurting and disenfranchised that, that nobody else could do, and saying almost unbelievable things about himself and what was going to happen and what would take place over three days, and then, and then it did. You may be here wondering what Easter is all about. Well, A, it's because we're in rebellion against the king, a benevolent king, the most caring, loving king that ever was, and yet we thought we knew better. It is an invitation to come back into the kingdom to the one who loves you and the one who created you. But more than that, it is not just that. It is in addition to that, those of us who have joined the kingdom again, who have reconciled to God, our creator through Jesus Christ, are invited to live a kingdom life. It's a different kind of life. I don't know about you, but over the last year, I felt beaten up on several occasions. I felt sorry for myself most of the time. I even was sorry for some of you occasionally. I think the messages that we want to share with you this Easter is don't be a rebel. (laughs) Come back to Jesus. Come back to your heavenly father. Be a part of the royal family and live with all of the rewards and privileges. And the second one is live with all the rewards and privileges. With the power of the resurrection available, available to you. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then all the things that you think hold you back, all the constraints you think you have, all the things that you think beat you down don't mean anything. You don't need to fear anymore. Cody said it a moment ago, even death itself isn't something to be afraid of. You are free. You are free from the fear of death. You are free from whatever might entangle you, even addiction itself. You are free. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then everything changes The first picture I want you to get is hands up. The second picture I want you to get is that little grassy hillside in Jerusalem looking at the old city and then the tomb, but remembering there's an empty tomb somewhere. The third picture I want you to remember is one that just came to me just today as I was standing right back over there just outside the tent. I remember that my entire Christian family, Christian history came from a moment sitting just outside a tent. Some of you have heard me tell the stories. My little grandma was dying She had lived a pretty sinful life. She knew she had. Her husband and father were in business together as bootleggers, criminals, gunfights and all. My father had been born. My father's birth preceded the marriage certificate. She had not been a particularly good or Christian woman. And now she found herself dying of some undiagnosed disease out in the country. And she heard there was going to be a preacher under a tent. I'm sure it wasn't anything like this one. And as she lay in the back, the Model A dying, she heard the preacher say, if you'll come to Jesus, if you will join the kingdom, if you'll ask for forgiveness, he will save you and he will change your life. And if you'd like to do that, just raise your hand. Just kind of like we did a while ago. Raise your hand. And she said in the back of that little, I think it was a Model A or a Model T, I can't remember. She said nobody saw her except God, but she feebly raised her little hand up and said, God, I will... I will be in your kingdom. She went home. She got well. Shocking to everyone. 
Eventually, my grandfather decided to leave her because he'd rather have his booze operation than my grandmother. But that didn't work out so well either. It's a story for another time, but I'm telling you, I'm here today because someone said yes to the kingdom, sitting outside a little tent like this. Not only did she say yes for forgiveness and salvation, she said yes in raising her children. And now there are dozens. I am not exaggerating. I might be understating dozens and dozens of pastors leading churches who are related to me who came from that woman and that man because she said yes. You see, God wants to extend his kingdom to you not just so you escape hell, not only so you have heaven, but so you have meaning and purpose on this earth and impact that you can never self-generate. You can't even imagine My little grandmother would have no idea of the thousands, literally tens of thousands of people in worship this weekend at churches pastored by her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. When you say yes to God, when you say yes to Jesus, you say yes to more than just being forgiven. And that's pretty good stuff right there. You say yes to what he has for you to the character he's going to develop in you, to make you more like Jesus. For the purpose he created you and gifted you and given you experience to do, you just don't know it yet. You have a place of impact in this world. There are some people that need to hear the gospel and they need to hear it from you because the way you say it is going to be better than the way anybody else says it to them. You see, when you say yes, you say to a life of victory. You say yes to a life that God intended for you. Some of us feel like we're crawling out from under this last year. And I want to say, don't crawl. Let's stand. Let's rise. Let's be who God called us to be. Because when you come into his kingdom, you are more than just a poor sinner who is forgiven. You're a child of God who has a mission on this earth. So today, I felt called to encourage you to stand up in faith to step up in purpose, to rise up to a new way of living, a new power for serving, and a new hope for sharing. That's what we're called to this Easter. So I've been, I wrote, a, I wrote a, uh, a devotional. It'll come out in the morning, and uh, it's the last in our series on Matthew, and it's about uh, Charles Wesley, who in 1739 wrote a song that we sing at Easter called, Christ the King is Risen Today. Hallelujah. And I was reading about his writing of that song and the hallelujah at the end of each line was added later. And I was prepared for that and I wrote it this week. And then last night during our, our uh, Good Friday service, it was just so powerful and so wonderful. And I was reflecting on it today in my office and I was thinking, man, I wish I could sing. Man, I wish I could write a song. And I realized God didn't gift me or call me to be a singer no matter how hard I might try. But he has gifted me with words. And so today I have some words. Would you like to hear them? I'm not guaranteeing they're going to be Charles Wesley worthy. We're probably not going to found a denomination on them. You might not even make it through listening to them. But today as I was thinking about God's goodness and what the cross means and what the resurrection means and how I believe God is calling us to rise up, these words came to me. So I say to you today, rise up. If you are tired, I say rise up. If you're discouraged, I say rise up. If you're feeling beaten down, I say, rise up. If you're confused, I say, rise up. If you have given up, I say, rise up. If you think there might be more, you're ready to open the door and then get off the floor, rise up. If you have enough of silly distractions, pain from other people's actions, tired of the lesser attractions, then rise up. If you're looking for meaning, if you're tired of the fleeting, if you're done with the cheating, 
With you, he is pleading, rise up. If you are mourning, if your life has been storming, you need a new morning, God's plan for you is forming, rise up. If you are afraid, you don't make the grade. Let the announcement be made. The debt has been paid. Rise up. If you're tired of the status quo, the same old, same old, being tossed to and fro, living just for show, then I say rise up. Rise up, people of God. Rise up to your call. He won't let you fall. Just give him your all. Rise up. He knows where you come from. Step into the kingdom. He'll bless you and then some. Come on, people. Rise up. Rise up. Rise up. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. You can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.